0: And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there.
1: This is Stella Strong, writer-producer on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Warp 5 on Trek FM.
0: How you doing, Trip. Ready when you are.
1: Prepare for warp. Course laid in, sir. Request permission to get underway.
0: Let's go. Welcome, Boomers, to another episode of Warp 5. I'm your host, Brandon Shea-Mutella, and normally I would be introducing Patrick, but Patrick has locked his car keys in his car, and he's unable to join us today. So uh, we are going to be doing it alone, but I'm thrilled to have on, for one of our last retrospective episodes, the wonderful, the knowledgeable John Tenuto. How are you doing, my friend?
1: Oh, very good. Thanks for asking me.
0: I'm thrilled to have you on. I have been wanting to have you on for this discussion for a really long time, because you are such a big fan of Star Trek 2 and I couldn't... We had a, di- a different uh, guest on for the Augment arc, but I wanted to bring you on for this here. So for our, our Season 4 retrospective, what we're going to be talking about today is Affliction and Divergence and Bound. And it's going to be really fun because these do tie into TOS. And John is a humongous TOS fan. And with the tie in to the con augments, uh, we're going to jump into Affliction and Divergence. Now, John, I don't know if you've heard me say it before, but I've said it on this episode, on this podcast, a few times. I am not a fan of this two-part episode because I am frustrated that they decided that they had to come up with this story to explain why the Klingons didn't have four head ridges in TOS. And as a fan, I'm frustrated because we didn't need that. It's silly. It's ridiculous. The obvious reason is due to budgetary restrictions and what they could do in the 60s, and that's all the explanation I need. What do you think of this? Let's just start right there with the big eyesore for me. <laughs>
1: well, you know, Manny Cotto thinks that, uh, at least if I recall correctly, he he believes that like, Divergence may be like one of their best episodes they did uh, mm-hmm. on Enterprise. Um but I think that may have had more to do with the uh, sort of the action, the incredible action uh, in, in there and the direct direction and all that, the good, great writing. But um, yeah, yeah, I could definitely see your point. Um, there, there's a lot of things that if we, you know, if we explained we had, we would need to explain, right. Uh, uh, in all of Star Trek, uh, there's a lot of inconsistency, you know, even internally within a show, right. Uh, this, the, mm-hmm. you know there's money and then there isn't money right there's there's mentions of uh you know the names of starfleet sort of changes at the beginning of the show and we don't we don't spend a lot of time uh, narrative time looking at that kind of thing i think it, it, as a, as an overall for season 4 a lot of what season 4 was trying to do was really showing what a prequel could be mm-hmm. um and and maybe uh, sort of showing where Enterprise might have started at the very beginning, uh, and that what it could have been from the start, and I think that they're if if we sort of take your point of view, maybe they went too far in trying to, to to sort of tie back to everything, or to tie back to the original Star Trek, you know, consistently, and that may have affected storytelling. On the other hand, you could say, well, that is a that's a big mystery, right? That, that to some fans, why? And then unfortunately, you do have them. In Deep Space Nine, kind of laying that on the table, right, where they sort of, say, you know, the, how is that a Klingon, you know, and we don't talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. And by putting that on the table in a canon way, right, that sort of, so it does, there is a difference, right? It isn't just... A makeup difference. It's, it's. I mean, it is. You're totally right. I mean, exactly right. The only reason they look different is because they had the money to do it, and that's what Gene Roddenberry said he would have liked to have done originally. That that's what he would have had the the Klingons look like if they had had the money back in the 1960s to do
0: that. Now, how much do you believe that actual story though? Like, how much do you believe that that he actually wanted forehead ridges originally?
1: Well, I don't know if he wanted exactly that design, but I'm sure you know when you take a look at the the aliens on on the original show and some of the really imaginative stuff they were able to do, you know, whether it's, um, uh, you know, rock creatures or or, um, they did sort of try to try to not be only foreheads, right. Or, or just makeup. There was an attempt to have, you know, like an obsession uh, to have uh, aliens that were amorphous. And so, You know, he may not have had that exact design in mind, but I'm sure he would have loved to have had the budget and or the technology at the time to do much more extensive makeup than just kind of like a a, a, a goatee and, you know, a little bit of um, face paint. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, whether he knew exactly the design or not, I don't, you know, I think a lot of that's sort of Fred Phillips coming up with that idea for how how to make that work.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, so this is this is what the episode's known for, is this is the one that explains the Klingons, and it's one that many fans were waiting for for, what, I guess 40 years at the time, 35 years, whatever it would have been, somewhere in there. And uh, I do like the episodes, I think that they are a lot of fun, I just, I kind of wish they weren't there. We recently had an episode where we did the essential episodes of Enterprise, and I made the argument that these two episodes are not essential, because I simply didn't want to have that explanation in there and if you look at it you can kind of fudge around it by having because at the at the start of bound trip is there and at the end of the last trilogy there trip is there so maybe he just hasn't left the ship in the meantime and just decides to stay so that's how i made it work in my head canon but <laughs> i'm sure i made makes some sense. fans unhappy.
1: yeah that makes sense
0: this is a pretty exciting episode as you mentioned though there's a lot of action that's going on here And, you know, we've got this great shot in the second part where the two Annex-class ships are, like, upside down against each other here. And it almost feels like, as well, the whole trip leaving plot line was set up just for that one shot. That one really epic shot of the two ships upside down against each other. What do you think about that?
1: Well, it's funny. When when that aired, um, gosh, what are we talking about now? We're talking 15 years ago. Uh, When that episode aired, I was teaching, and I was teaching a um, Star Trek-themed class uh, at the college. It was a um, uh, sociology class, and and some of the students liked Star Trek and and knew nothing about sociology, and others knew a lot about sociology and nothing about Star Trek, and it was a really interesting class. um, And Enterprise was on, so part of their weekly Homework was to watch Enterprise, and then we would talk about (laughs) any social issues that were in the show. So I remember, I always vividly remember this, a student coming up um, after uh, Divergence had aired, and a pretty reserved kid. He was, you know, kind of like a shy, introverted kind of kid, but he came up and he, he said to me, that first 11 minutes was the most exciting 11 minutes I've ever seen in television. Mm-hmm. and i rem- I remember you know now you look at it, and you know okay we they, they can do so much more with the CGI and all that kind of stuff, but I do remember watching that opening sequence and thinking everything from the music to the camera work by Marvin Rush to the uh editing to the acting that really is. I think some of Star Trek's most exciting moments is is that transfer sequence and how they set that up and the, the ingenuity of it, the cleverness of it, and just you know, Judy and Gar Reeves, Stevens coming up with that is just, you know not surprising because they're really great. I mean, they're they, mm-hmm. they. It was a very smart move to bring in quality book writers, you know, to, to do some of the scripts.
0: And yeah, stay um, tuned, listeners, because uh we got a Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens interview coming on episode two hundred, and that's a promise because it's already recorded.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean they were so <laughs> and they're so great. I mean I I I, I so I just thought that, that was that is one of my favorite sequences ever in in, in Star Trek. I love <laughs> I can watch that again and again and again. I love that transfer. I love the way The camera moves, I mean, there's so many great shots in there when you have the Columbia and the the camera pans across the bow of the Columbia, right directly into the ship, right onto Mm -hmm. Captain Hernandez. And you've got, of course, the sort of spin around with trip with the camera angle. And the fact that they did that when they were given literally no budget, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, you you can see that in the fourth season, the budgetary limitations, you know, uh, that they were under because they knew they kind of knew that was their last year. And uh, and uh, it was more sort of like uh, let's get to syndication numbers and uh, but there they were budget problems, but they they did so great in that episode. I, I love that scene.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really outstanding. I, I agree with you. It's one of the most intense action sequences for TV of the time. That first, as you say, eleven. I I haven't timed it out, but yeah, that first eleven minutes there is pretty off the wall, you know, for edgier seat filmmaking. And I think it still is. Um, you know, but we got some really cool things that are established in this. Well we had her established in home. You know, it's really great to see Captain Hernandez in a command position right now because, you know, while we had Janeway once before as a woman captain on the show, you know, like this is pre-Kirk era, like right? this is early, saying that the second ship that we're going to launch is, we've got a woman running it, and not only that, but then she's Hispanic as well, which is really cool. I wish, this is a character that I really wish we would have had more of, and I think it's a very important character in Star Trek history, and is often overlooked for, because Enterprise is often overlooked, but I think it's she's also overlooked because she's only in three episodes of the show.
1: Yeah, she is a great character. In fact, I was when I was revisiting the episodes, uh, the past couple of weeks just watching them a couple of times uh, it struck me how, as much as I want a pike and a <laughs> and a and a spy, a Spock and a and a una show um, i want I would have loved the captain Hernandez show. I thought she was a great captain um, she i mean I, I loved that there was sort of a twin ship to enterprise out there it would have been. I think, really remarkable had they sort of had. And in fact, I, I know that there were, I remember when Discovery was announced and there were sort of guesses as to what it was going to be about. And we, we didn't know anything. It was just the very, very, basically the name was announced. Um, but that it was going to be somehow different. Uh, I remember one of the ideas that was bandied around was that it would be a multiple ship show so that it wouldn't be a single ship. It would be, on, it would, the stories would take place on several different ships. And I thought that would have always been a, a cool idea for sort of a fifth season of, of, um, of, uh enterprise would have been to sort of have a two ship show and, and bring on care, you know, and cross pollinate the characters a little bit, maybe make trip, you know, over, over there a little bit on the Columbia. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that that was great. She was a wonderful character. she, you know, was uh, like you said, in many ways, historic. It, it sort of answers, finally answers that question that you know uh, has been lingered, you know, with critics of how progressive was the original Star Trek. I, I always thought that in the last episode, Turnabout Intruder, uh, when Lester is saying that there are no women captains, that she's, she was just mistaken, that she was, it was part, you know, she wasn't a captain material. And that she was she wasn't necessarily be trusted because of her mental state, and this this shows that there are obviously female captains in Starfleet. Pre pre you know pre the motion picture era when we when we see cap the female captains in like Star Trek Four and uh, we see several female captains, but uh, mm-hmm. you know you I I think that, that that's an important for the show to have had that also
0: mm-hmm see with that line from Janice Lester, like I've always interpreted as I, I believe the line is your world of starship captains doesn't allow women, and right. you know the way that I've always interpreted that is like they they had a relationship in the past. It's like Kirk chose to not be married. Picard chose to not be married. you know that's my interpretation is that being a starship captain, you're sacrificing that family life, and it doesn't mean that women can't be captains.
1: Right, because we've never seen that. I mean, you see it in the books, right? But in terms of the TV shows, right, you know, mm-hmm. Kirk was Kirk was Kirk didn't have a stable family life, and neither did Picard, mm-hmm. and neither did uh, only Cisco, right? I mean, Cisco kind of broke that mold. Janeway didn't. Uh, mm-hmm. Archer didn't. Right? So uh, only Cisco and that's one of the reasons that he's such a great character and, and historic, too.
0: And he wasn't a captain at the time.
1: And he was not a captain at the time. That's right. That's right.
0: Mm-hmm. We actually just did an episode of, the, of our new podcast, The Line, which is a Star Trek Picard podcast here on the network. And I did a whole episode uh, that was actually released today as of our recording here on August 12th, um, convincing my co hosts that Captain Picard actually is a family man and he developed over the seven years in Star Trek Generations. His Nexus sequence is perfect for him as a character. <laughs> so go listen to that if you, if you, if that. Got you agitated because you, you, you remember Picard saying he doesn't like kids in counter at Farpoint. <laughs>
1: and that's, of course, of course. And I, well, we're interested to see where he's at and what he's at and how much of the books and such they bring in with uh, Picard when it becomes a TV show.
0: hmm So we've got this idea, which I think is very, very true to who the Klingons are in this two-part episode, with them finding out about the augments and wanting to stay a military power by stealing this technology, stealing this data, stealing this research, and creating their own Klingon augments. I think this is very true for who the Klingons are, and I think I do think it is a fun story, and I do like it a lot. So what do you think about the augments and bringing back this Khan element that had been established earlier in the season?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, any, any even slight tangential connection to Khan... Con. I'm going to like it it's not like but um yeah I mean I I thought I mean what, what's what's remarkable and just shows you what a talented uh um actor uh James Avery is right so James Avery who plays uh, the general Kavash or Kavash. uh he you know he's
0: Uncle he's, Phil. He,
1: he's Uncle Phil right from 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 uh, <laughs> uh Fresh Prince of Bel-Air but and he's so good in that role and so great as a Klingon and and he makes that that really believable realistic you know argument that you know the uh, human beings augmented human beings which they believe they believe is possible right i mean the flocks kind of argues no 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 humans that that was a renegade situation right that the humans know better than to have augments but from their perspective you know, it's the same sort of perspective you get in in uh, Star Trek Three, right? Where it's like, well, yeah, you, this is, oh yeah, the Earth is making the, you know, this the Starfleet is making this for terraforming purposes, right? It's a weapon, right? So the it's being filtered through the Klingon lens of uh, of the, the potential danger to them, and uh, when he like, when the general just kills. Uh, the prisoner who has, is in stage one of the disease and has several more stages to go through. Well, meanwhile, they're trying to find a cure and possibly the guy could be saved and he just kills him because it's expedient, um, mm-hmm. for the research. That, I think that really shows you kind of the, the, the difference between the Klingons and, and what was shown in Next Gen with Worf when he would not donate his blood. I mean, there's a certain, um, uh, expediency or efficiency to the way that their society is—that does make them different, and I thought right. that was that was a great moment in in the Enterprise episode.
0: Right. You know, like, one of the things I've also said on this podcast is, by the time Enterprise has come around, I'm tired of the Klingons. Like, with Sleeping Dogs in Season 1 and having Duras again in Season 2, you know, I'm tired. I think they're stale. The Federation is always besting them every corner. You know, they're always... they're always pounding their chest and screaming about honor. But to me, this two-part episode is really the best representation that we've seen of the Klingons in a long time. We've got three really great actors leading the way as Klingons, and I, I don't know all of their names, but we do have the guy from Star Trek Four. John Shuck, uh, yeah, yeah. John Sheck, yeah, and he yeah. does a great job as Antos. And then the other Klingon who's in charge of the ship, you know, when he's talking with Harris on the, on the com channel... You know, I just, I like his tone and I like his attitude. And I think he really does a great job of being a Klingon on screen. And same with, uh, you said his name's James Avery, right? James Avery Mm -hmm. does a great job as well. Like these guys really do a good job. And I think these Klingons really hit it out of the park like Enterprise has not done in three and a half years.
1: They did a, and they also showed you the, the, the multi faceted. Uh, elements of the culture that, and that not everyone is a warrior, even within a warrior society. That the, that uh, you know, uh, and it's funny because of course John Chuck had played uh, an, a, a diplomat of sorts uh, in Star Trek's four and six um, uh, as a Klingon ambassador. So he he has this tendency of sort of playing these um, non-traditional kind of uh, uh, Klingon roles, right, and. Um, uh, he did a good job in this, showing you what would a Klingon doctor be like—a person who's a healer in a society where they tend—I mean, they—they they leave you. Would they heal you? Right? I mean, if you're in a, you're on the battlefield, are you going to get healed? And and so he's he does a very good job of sort of playing. What does compassion mean in that kind of a warrior society? I thought he did a great job
0: hmm Because we'd seen a little bit of this exploration in Season 2 with the episode Judgment, right? Because J- Archer had a um, a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. And I believe it's in that episode where they ask, like, well, you didn't think we were all warriors, did you? And honestly, yes, the answer to that is yes, we actually did think that, because that's really all we'd seen on screen before. So,
1: Yeah, I always liked, like, a, a, a DS9, which is interesting, because you would think they would have really explored the Klingon. Culture more fully did did tend to focus mostly on the because of this the necessity of the story uh, on the more militaristic aspects of it. But the, even DS Nine would once in a while lay a little thing on there like the Klingon uh, restaurant owner, you know, who sang and did his, you know that there there ha there has to be you know Klingon janitors, right? And 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 so I mean it's almost like um, within the military the real military of of our of our. Uh, world in the United States military, every every person in the military, no matter their function, has to also be capable of fighting. Mm-hmm. So even if your job is that you're in the band, you still have military actual military training, um, even though you may not necessarily use a weapon in your normal course of of your service. And I've always sort of thought, well, that sort of applies to the Klingons. right? So every Klingon is a a warrior uh, or or aspires to be a warrior. But at the same time, they still need dentists and, you know, uh, tax accountants and things like that. And then they just but they are capable of being that or they approach their work with that same sort of mentality or idea. So I I think this episode kind of highlights that where you get these differing perspectives, um, you know, from from the the prism of compassion all the way to the prism of you know exp, you know death of whole colonies for expediency's sake. Mm-hmm.
0: And one of the things like we even have in our own society, while well, the Klingon warrior caste is really dominant and they feel like they're the most important. At least that's the impression that I get. They feel like they're the most important part of the Klingon Empire. I mean, even in, I would say in our military services, we have this competing, oh, we're kind of better than you, right? Because, you know, at least you see it in the movies where the Marines versus the Commandos are like, oh, no, we're the real backbone and we're the more important ones. And the other guys are saying, no, we are, so you know, everybody kind of feels like they're the most important ones because of their job that they do, because they all feel that their job is very important.
1: And you see that, the, you see that, that theme carried through a little bit with, uh, season three of enterprise where you have the Mako versus the mm-hmm. Starfleet, you know, but both be both because the mission is different, right. Where Starfleet is not a military organization and the mm-hmm. Makos are, and, uh, but also just the the different approaches to how you would the, the negotiator versus the action oriented problem solver. You know how do you how do how do you approach a, the resolution of a of a conflict? There's a couple of things I was thinking about in the episode, just as a, a, a an overall kind of thing. One, of course, you get Seth uh, MacFarlane, which is great as Rivers. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, that's a, sort of the Orville. You know, is that is that really Rivers or is that you know?
0: Is Does that, this take uh, place in the Orville? Verse? Yeah, it's the
1: Orville. is crossed <laughs> over. But, um, you know, I, what I liked about what I really liked about the fourth season of enterprise, uh, although I'm a big enterprise fan, I, I, I think it doesn't get the kind of uh, attention that it deserves, but, uh, um, the, what I thought about the storytelling mechanism Manny Koto brought in in the fourth season with these sort of mini arcs, but that those mini arcs also linked to other arcs so that nothing was, you know, that the, the, and in fact, I think that's the best type of storytelling for Star Trek so that there is consequence, but I don't, you know, I think there are problems within larger arc, a season-long arc is a problem mm-hmm. on a show that's about, discovering things because then you can only mm-hmm. discover a limited amount of things. So um, I thought that they kind of hit the right balance and, and then, and and DF nine had done something kind of similar. Um, although with I think a the different kind of structural format, but um, I, so I liked, you know, that like they would introduce characters or you would have characters like Kelby here. And then mm-hmm. Kelby plays a more important role in, in, bound, you know, and that, but the, the setup is done here. So that it, it, I mean, it gave a coherency to it that I thought was you did, you didn't, uh, you don't get in an episodic kind of a, exp- you know, usually don't get Well, you, you'd, they'd hint at that occasionally TNG, you'd get like, you know, uh, the episodes where say, say would you wouldn't see your face and they were hinting that something was coming, you know, that kind of stuff. But, but they really, um, uh, I thought effectively did, did that on enterprise. And I thought like having like a little bit of that conflict between trip and, and, uh, Kelby in this episode, I thought was very good. And, mm-hmm. um, and then there were a lot of callbacks. One of the things I loved about Manny Cotto's season is there's lots of little callbacks. So when you have to Paul mind melding with Hoshi to try to, um, kind of help her remember that, was sort of a gentle version of what we saw in The Undiscovered Country, where you have the violent version of that where Spock Mm -hmm. really violates uh, in order to save the galaxy uh, uh, Valeris, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, her mind and what what she knows. And, uh, you know, obviously lots of references to Soong in this episode, and, you know, you get the kind of the, the, the... the first mention of the Gorn historically, right? That would be Mm -hmm. the first time that they would have heard about the Gorn and, you know, section 31. I mean, there's, they just did a lot of um, that. The, 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 uh, the one thing I would say that uh, struck me about this episode was that if you're anybody's a fan of the original DC comic line, the Star Trek line of the 1980s that started in between Uh, Star Trek, the motion, uh, Star Trek two and Star Trek three, and then carried on for, you know, about 56 issues before they came out with a second wave, which carried through for another 50 plus issues. But they, they had a storyline in there that was very similar, at least in terms of the, the resolution. So in that story, um, there's an ensign uh, in the comic book. Uh, Kirk is, Kirk is kind of you know, as usual, sort of flip itself, violating the rules here and there within the comic book. And there's an ensign who decides to take. A, there's a there's a culture that they meet, where there's a disease among a unwanted part of the population. They were they were uh, doing a allegory to AIDS, the early days of AIDS, and okay. and they they have the the ruling classes have no interest in trying to help. The people that have the disease because it's kind of clustered within this unwanted masses, and um, so the ensign gives the leader of the world the disease to force him to to come up with the to co- to come up with investing in a cure, and that um, very much is what Flox does at the end of this episode. And I always thought like there was a. Um, maybe there was a sort of coincidence, but I always kind of like that connection, uh, between that comic book and, and, uh, and, and this episode.
0: Well, I wouldn't put past them because I mean, they were doing a lot of, uh, callbacks to TAS episodes and stuff at this time, you know, so I wouldn't put it past them that they would have done a callback like that to another version of the franchise.
1: Yeah, it was a nice, I mean, I was, I, 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 I liked that solution. Um, and in the comic, they really dealt with then Kirk realizing, like, what kind of example am I setting for, you know, because the movies are kind of, the, the, the movies had Kirk move into this sort of like, he, 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 I'm breaking the rules, kind of like personality. Uh, and they all get in on it. I mean, Star Trek 6 they're breaking rules left and right. And, the, you know, in the show, he was reticent to do that not that he wouldn't be innovative you know um but he wasn't as much of a rule breaker in the show and I thought that was interesting that the comic kind of dealt with that aspect of Kirk and I like that Flox, who is very much kind of a rule oriented person to some degree and he kind of argues for a prime you know a prime directive and medical ethics and being bound by procedure and he's the one who kind of comes up with a uh, almost Klingon-like solution. So his time with uh, with uh, Antak uh, affected him.
0: You had also mentioned the um, mind meld. I wanted—I didn't want to forget about that because I wanted to call back to it. I think it was really interesting how it was done, mm-hmm. um, the way that they portrayed it on screen with Paul walking beside her, but, st- you know, Flock's doing his lines from previous, but the two of them interacting around him. It was yeah. a really interesting take on a mind meld because we haven't seen mind melds a lot, and the mind melds we have seen have been like flashes of images and stuff like that, and we haven't really seen like a protracted instance like this of a mind meld before.
1: Yeah, it was. Re- I mean, if you look at sort of Star Trek Six is probably our our most uh, vivid uh, example of a, what a, what a mind meld might look like, and that was more the. Uh, the special edition type of you know editions where they do a flashback and you see the faces of the of the people. I don't I don't think that was in the original edition. And so no, um, you know, yeah, so they they um, this really was the first time you kind of got. And think of that, you're very much right. That is the very first time we're really getting inside a mind meld for a protracted period of time.
0: And, and Paul gets a physical reaction when mm-hmm. Hoshi's struck.
1: Yes, and they and they and they have the um, the uh, the coloring right is different right. It's sort of the mm-hmm. they, they it's the same set and everything, but where it's very sort of dark in the original, it's more dreamlike, you know. And then you see her and Trip too, together, sort of in their mm-hmm. their 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 uh, FaceTime or whatever they were doing with one another, They're, you know.
0: Expected Q to show up.
1: Yeah, and do like a little hey. Picard,
0: you're dead. I guess, but also before we move on to Bound, though, we should probably talk about Section 31. I can't believe I almost forgot about that. You know, like, so, timeline-wise, this is the first we see Section 31, and... You know, I'm one of those people, I kind of complained a bit about how Section 31 was portrayed on Discovery, where they're just kind of out there and talking about it, but we get that here. You know, Harris is calling everybody, he's like, well, he doesn't call themselves Section 31, he's like, you know, go to the charter, Section 31, Mm -hmm. you know, but he's calling Archer and he's talking to him and he's on the phone and he's you know, with Archer telling him about these things and how Reed was doing work for him and whatnot and how he's doing this kind of covert operations. So while it's not quite as in your face as we get with Discovery, it's definitely a, a little bit different than what we saw in DS Space Nine.
1: Yeah, and I always read, I kind of read uh, Section 31, at least post DS9, because the DS9, of course, is its real origins and and, mm-hmm. uh, and everything, but as as they've sort of brought Section 31 into the... Star Trek world more I've always sort of read it as uh, you know, maybe there's a section 31 That's the public face of section 31 and then there's more like the Sloan sort of side of section 31 obviously supposedly we're going to learn why uh, Section 31 kind of becomes more underground uh, as a result of Maybe what has occurred and and what will occur on either the show or in the future uh, episodes of the discovery uh, era but um you know, I, I did like this, I did like this added a lot to Malcolm, and of course, this is what I mean about those little mini arcs that tie together, so they bring back Section 31 in the Terra Prime kind of couplet of episodes, which is beautiful and sad, uh, uh, episodes, um, near, near the very end of the show. And they bring sort of back Malcolm's connection to Section 31, and I thought that was a nice, um, addition i thought dominic keating did his i mean he did really i mean he'd never been a bad actor on that show and in fact he was great in shuttle pod one but i thought his interactions with and his struggle um that he had within this episode and particularly his scenes with um scott Bakula, were phenomenal and they were Mm -hmm. really uh you see you see in him the the struggle i mean he is when 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 Archer says, you know, your word doesn't mean much, you know, right now, um, you could just you feel the weight go out of the person because the, the, to him, that's everything that honor that duty. And I just thought that was a great addition to the character it would have been interesting to see them sort of play with that more had the show gone on.
0: Do you think that it's in character, though, for Malcolm to have been a Section 31 agent? Because to me, while he did a great job, uh, Dominic Keating did a great job acting this, you know, Reed is a kind of guy who's like very loyal, very by the book, right? He's a rule follower, not a rule breaker, you know, so for him to be going and working for this covert operation even at a young age while i understand young people can make questionable decisions sometimes does that with with all his history of his family being in the army and the navy and and in positions like that does that seem within his character to you
1: well i thought i think it's okay that they that they complicated these characters a little bit but i but i i see i've never read i mean i i think I mean, I, I, you know, I, okay. So I have a nickname for Admiral Cornwall, which is Admiral genocide. And, <laughs> and, and I really thought that they should have, that at the end of the first season, she should have been court-martialed okay. because she, right. Because her actions were beyond, they were, they were genocidal. I mean, she, that was mm-hmm. beyond warfare. Um, and, I, they washed that just right away, you know, and I'm glad because she did, she was great in the second season, right? So it's, it was, and she's a wonderful actress, but I thought that that was just, you know, just beyond, you know, and the, so that she's associated with section 31, it turns out, makes a certain amount of sense, I suppose. But, you know, I've always read section 31 as almost like a, there, there, there's a dichotomy there, right? I mean, they they are sanctioned, right? So, Starfleet knows they exist, they're sanctioned. They they operate in shadow. I mean they they're basically like a CIA type of organization. And and so there here's the CIA and we we look up. we as CIA agents are heroic and sacrificing and patriotic and all of that. And then there's elements of the of what they have to do that the public doesn't want to know about. And I always sort of read that that's what how section 31 was. So I thought for Malcolm that he went into it with the idea that he was joining an organization that was patriotic and, 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 you know, followed rules and was honorable. And then as he got involved in it, he saw that there might, there was a little more dirt to it than he had been, than he had thought. And that's why he left and to, to focus his energies in other directions. That's because I felt from his conversations with, um, that he had, you know, when he was talking to Harris, that he was, he was sort of like saying, like, I'm, I'm remember I'm through with you guys, like that he left. Right. Right. right? So not, not that they sort of, he did his tour of duty and he went on, but that he, he left and there his Harris is like, you don't, you never leave. Right. And, and uh the, so I sort of felt like he came to some sort of a reckoning and, and saw the reality of what the organization or at least elements of the organization were capable of. And he couldn't stomach that. So I felt that that was That was in character.
0: Nice. I like that. That works for me. <laughs> And for listeners, uh, go back and listen to our episode 179 of Warp 5. We had author David Mack on, and we talked about Section 31, and, you know, it's a really great discussion. David Mack knows Section 31 inside and out, and we talk about the organization as they're portrayed in Enterprise and, and all over the Star Trek franchise, and, you know, how fans have this general misconception of what they are, and you know they they think that it's just like a CIA type thing but how he goes into in depth as to how they're just how more they're more than that and how they are really truly evil and it's really a great discussion and so I highly recommend it if you haven't listened to it yet that's episode 179 called extra legal and morally wrong so excellent awesome excellent well should we move on to bound yes bound so Bound is the episode that I had actually been waiting for for a long time, because I was always curious about the Orions. We'd only really seen two examples of Orions. You know, like, I don't I don't really consider that the TAS Orions are the same Orions. I think that it's something really different. I don't know about you. But uh, it was really neat to see them come back. Um i like the episode i think it's a lot of fun there's some problematic elements in it but i think the episode's a whole lot of fun so what are your initial thoughts on bound and seeing the orions again
1: well you know certainly if you're going to do a callback a, a call to uh the original star trek then you, you you'd want to go all the way back to the cage and 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 by extension the menagerie and um they certainly do that in this episode taking uh an alien race created by Gene Roddenberry uh, and, uh, and, and exploring it. Cause that they certainly are a race that, you know, you, you hear about the Orion syndicate and you hear about Orion's throughout really all of uh, Star Trek, but uh, we don't know much about them at all. They're probably one of the least explored cultures. Because, and I think part of that is because they're sort of, they're visual, right? And so, uh, both the men and the feet, the, the women are, there's the, the, the men are hulkingly large and they're green and, you know, all that kind of stuff and hulkingly green. See what I did there. And, uh, <laughs> I didn't realize that until I said it. And, uh, but, but I think that, uh, that they never really got deep into the culture beyond be, beyond the superficial things because superficially that's all we were initially introduced to them as sort of as a superficial, uh, culture. So they, they tried to add a bit of dimension to to them through the three female characters on the ship, and then, of course, the surprise reveal at the end.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'd seen them a little bit in the augment arc at the start of the season, right, at that Orion trading market with, uh, I think the actor's name is Big Show, Uh, he calls himself Anne. But we didn't really get much added to it, so that's almost like when they had the Tellarites in Bounty back in Season 2, where they're just there, there's not really any exploration, it's just a quick callback to an alien species that we'd seen before. But yeah, you're right, in this one here we do get a little bit more in-depth into who these Orions are. And, you know, one of the things is, they're always, like, they're always been associated as these are the slave women because of what we saw in the cage as being this Orion dancer and how they talked about Pike wanting to trade in animal women, right? Mm -hmm. If he ever did leave Starfleet. And so they did try and update that and modernize it, which is kind of problematic in itself in that they're like, no, it's really the women who are in charge and the men who are the slaves, which I don't know, to me, it's just a throwaway line to try and make it okay, but it still doesn't work for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, if it's, if, if slavery's you know if if slavery is presented as okay for men that's a problem mm-hmm. right i mean so um it's not okay for anyone so it's not okay if mm-hmm. men are slaves it's not okay if women are slaves i mean slavery is wrong and i think there the the episode the, the episode missed a chance maybe to make a comment about slavery i thought and as a as a social issue there it, it's there and there is that element where where um, Archer is trying to explain to the, the 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 sort of gifts the gift that he was given. I always thought that was kind of a strange thing that Archer would do. Except that I, I guess he took it as a diplomatic uh, appealing to his diplomatic side, I suppose, and his concern for wanting to try to um, to make alliances or something, but.
0: Um, well, my interpretation of him actually accepting the gift is just because the pheromones were overpowering him too much, and therefore they're they 're more prone to suggestion
1: right I, I I was a little concerned about that because he seemed stable at the, like I, I, they make the argument that it 's cumulative right in the episode, so that it becomes worse so, so you know it 's like any so you, the, the longer you 're exposed to the pheromones the the more you 're able to be controlled so I mean maybe he mm-hmm. was. Spent more time with them than I had thought but I, I I always tried to try to rationalize like why would he? Accept this idea anyway unless his view was well, we could free these three women and that's where I thought they lost that ability to make a comment on you know the Singularly worst, you know uh, uh, economic institution ever created right uh, uh, slavery and so make a comment on it, talk about it. And, you know, they do talk about the idea that in in the archer's world, there people aren't owned and people are free and they do sort of, when she's sitting there, I, I, it does seem maybe even genuine when she says, you know, to, um, you know, what do I do? What would, what would I do? Right. I mean Mm -hmm. that, but then of course then that even becomes a a cheat because she's not really the slave, right. She's a manipulator Mm -hmm. and the slaves are the men and, so I it, it 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 it's not as an effective, I think, episode for what they could have talked about and, and it would have been fine if they switched it and had the women being in control or whatever and make a make you think you want to know the Orions but you don't, but then really get into that culture and what does that mean, right? I mean, so the men the men are slaves but they're running I mean it appears like they run everything in all the other episodes, so are they just manipulated from behind the scenes, and why why would they feel a need to present the men as the the uh, the leaders like to alien cultures because there are going to be alien cultures that have no men or women, and there are going to be alien cultures where women are the leaders, and do they adapt every culture and since the federation is a egalitarian society where men and women are equal, why wouldn't you? Present, why wouldn't you just present the women? I mean, I, I, so it raises a whole host of problems that were in a way unnecessary and I think misses an opportunity to really talk about what it means. Because that's one of the things that Star Trek really hasn't dealt with much, really. If you think about it, is slavery as a, as a, a human freedom, yes. Um, uh, measure of a man dealt with it in a very sort of esoteric, beautiful way. But, you know, mm-hmm. what is property and that sort of thing. But that was that was almost like a philosophical, but to really, truly deal with it in a powerful way, I think they could have done that in this episode and didn't do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the episode itself is problematic. It, it's it's fun to see the Orions and it's fun to, you know, get them, get this call back to the original Star Trek, um, you know, and... You'd mentioned it earlier, I, I didn't want to interrupt at the time, but this is the episode where they do mention the Gorn, uh, right, when he's giving him the drink. Um, so we do get another verbal callback, which will be paid off in the next episode, or two episodes from now, uh, in the Mirror Universe, right? But uh, we get a little more payback on on some more threads that are going through the show. but. You know, I have to address it here, and I know, I have to address it because I'm aware of the issue, but I'm not the best person to talk about it, Uh, and that we try and bring up as many of the social issues that we can that are addressed on this, and I know that in this day and age, people do talk a lot about how the pheromones only affect people in a heterosexual way, right? They talk about how the men are more attracted to the women, and the women are getting headaches, and it doesn't affect Tripp because he's in love with T'Pol. It doesn't affect T'Pol because she's in love with Trip. But why? what does it do for LGBT people? And I don't have the answer to that. I know that other people have had this discussion. Uh, but I definitely wanted to make sure to mention it here because I, I am aware of it. My only headcanon is there's only 90-some people on the Enterprise Annex 01, I'm guessing there's just no gay people on the show. I don't know. That's the only headcanon I can come up I with.
1: I thought, so. I mean, I could I could be wrong. So somebody maybe, uh, or I'll just go back and I'll look at it myself. I had thought there was a line in there that there, the women were affected, and it wasn't only, that was, I remember the part, you know, about Hoshi having the headache and everything. That was definitely part of the story. But that there was, There was a line in there. I could be wrong. I may may be wrong, but I thought there was a line in there where the there was the men and the women were being that there were and some of the like Fox has a line that says and some of the women.
0: And I thought I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I think
1: that I mean they may have they 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 may have uh, mentioned that. I could be I could be wrong too, but yeah, that's you know that's I, I, I wonder if this episode you. This would this episode get made today is also another issue, right? Uh, in terms of just its presentation of, I mean, it's it's I, to me it's an interesting episode because it's that um, classic sort of sea tale of the sirens, you know, the, the the mermaids, and they're calling the men, and the men are crashing the boat into the rocks, right? I mean, it's, and it's very much that same kind of a storyline where the, the 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 men, but I mean, there's a lot of you know the men are working out. You know to get their aggressions out. You know that kind of that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of. I, if you wanted to take a feminist bent to the episode, there's a lot of things you could take and peel apart. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I tend not to watch Star Trek from that lens, just because, to me, it's 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 one of the lenses you would use, but I wouldn't put it in every episode. This one seems to be appropriate, I think, to use that lens. But um, mm-hmm. I thought it was an interesting episode because. Visually, I thought it was. It was. It it seemed almost like a bottle show, you know, in terms of the visuals of it. There wasn't. It wasn't. It was. It was very claustrophobic the way that they filmed it. It was very much on the Enterprise. Um, uh, You know, you 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 get you got to see uh, the Orion ship, and they kind of went to the plan. There were little tiny sequences where you were off the ship, either by view screen or by Archer going and having his meeting on the Orion vessel. But it was kind of a bottle episode and it it felt like that to me. It felt like it was, there really wasn't a lot of, um, anything new within it, you know, in terms of the visual Mm -hmm. dynamics of it. Um,
0: and it's a shame. Orion ship.
1: Yeah, we got that, which was kind of neat. And I, and I think that the ship that they say they don't know what it is, um, no, uh, yeah, no, I'm getting confused with the other episode. But the, w- I thought this is Marvin Rush's last episode where he was cinematographer because he would go on and direct a few uh, at the end. But uh, it didn't give him a lot to do. I thought I didn't. I did. There just wasn't visually as interesting. And Alan Croker directed it, who's you know just a genius director, did 38 episodes of Star Trek, including the last episode of DS9, the last episode of Voyager, the last episode of Enterprise. You know, he did the last of basically all of them except TNG. And um, uh, even the direction in this, it, was, it seemed sort of like a, I don't want to say a pedestrian episode, but just sort of like, a, it, it, there wasn't anything that was very special about it standing out. Um, but I did like the, the sort of siren theme of it. Um, and I did, and I did, and I was hoping that they would deal with sort of slavery more as an issue that to me, that was more of an interesting issue than dealing with sort of the gender aspect of it. Cause the gender aspect of it was more of a MacGuffin, you know, kind of like we need that in order to have the ship, the captain was a male. So the, the pheromones are, you know, and he's a straight male. So it's going to be that relationship and that, mm-hmm. but I, I did, I did wish that they did, there were missed opportunities and maybe there was also missed opportunity to say something about gender or sexuality and they didn't do that either.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you had mentioned earlier in this episode, so we have Kelby, we've got this callback to Kelby who's still agitated from, from the previous episode of having his command authority challenged by having trip stick around. And that's, continued and amplified in this episode so this these pheromones are making him more aggressive as well and uh so we end up with this kind of conflict between him and trip that uh comes to a head in this episode
1: yeah and i thought that you know that was a uh, uh, again nice sort of seed planting in those original uh episodes but i i thought uh in the, in the episodes previous um, but in a way, I kind of understood his position, right? I mean, he he was promoted, <laughs> and this guy left, and it seemed kind of like a willy-nilly, like I'm leaving, but I'm staying, and I'm leaving, I I'm And I know Trip is Trip, and he's great, and he's like the greatest engineer in Starfleet. But it seemed kind of like, if I was Hernandez, I would have been mad, and if I was Archer, I would have been mad. It's like pick, make, pick, pick a ship, and stick with it, because this kind of going back and forth within the matter of you know a very short period of time. To me, that doesn't ring very true, you know, mm-hmm. and seems more like a, like you said, maybe a chance to have that one sequence and to to, to give him a reason to have been on the Columbia.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we mentioned in, when we were doing our, our discussion on the three-part Babel arc, that it, it kind of comes out of nowhere because he's he his feelings towards T'Pol and his anger towards her, because in the first episode, he's trapped on the ship with, Read on the Romulan uh, hologram ship, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, like in the second episode or whatever, he's like all of a sudden upset with her. I might have my episode numbers out of order on that, but all of a sudden he's just upset with her and decides to leave the ship. You know, and it, it felt yeah. kind of forced in the in the arc.
1: They did. I mean, they what they what I thought was good is they did do a good. I thought they had very good T'Paul character development in this episode. She has the really hilarious sequence at the beginning where she's talking about the flying reptiles and they breathe. Yeah. <laughs> the report says they breathe fire. And so there's lingering questions about the accuracy of this report. the report. She does, brilliant acting and just really deadpan in the way she does it. And you you get the idea that she's pulling one over on them. That she is. Sort of joking with them, and then at the end she she jokes not once but twice with them, and that that dimension and then her her willingness to be open a little bit with trip at the end and wanting him to stay um, I thought it was very nice, and that was that was a very sort of genuine, sweet moment within an otherwise kind of just sort of you know i guess fun episode
0: mm hmm Right on. Yeah, so now let's talk a little bit about the relationship with Tripp and DePaul because we get a little bit more evolution of the relationship here. He decides to stay on the ship even though uh, he decided to leave, even though the relationship had been causing him a little bit of uh, trouble in the work environment. But we finally get this massive kiss between the two of them um, you know, in this episode. And I, I, if I remember correctly, I think this is the first time Right, we've had all these intimate moments up in season three and whatnot, but I think this is really the first time that, you know, it built up because in home, you know, we could tell that there was something building mm. but then she was going to get married. Right? And then that marriage ended up in a divorce. But this is I think this is if I remember correctly I might be wrong, but this is the first time that they kiss. Am I right? I
1: think you're right. I think at least in a in a in an actual form. Right. I mean, in a, mm-hmm. in a, yeah, there's a lot of sort of like gel sequences and stuff like that, you know, prior, yes. but yeah, uh, it's, uh, yeah. And it's, you know, it is, it's a nice moment because you get the idea that he stays and I, again, great acting at the end, the look that she gives at the end is sort of like, he's not telling the truth. Like, he's like, mm-hmm. like, Oh, this is going to, you know, it is a big deal. And to him, it's a big deal. And so I, I, I thought that that was a nice, I liked that kiss more than my wife and I are always cringe. Whenever we have these shows, I I've just never seen it in reality where people are fighting and they hate each other screaming and then they kiss. Yeah. And I was, it's, it's 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 like, that's such a Hollywood bunch of malarkey. And they, unfortunately they do that into the DS nine. They have the kiss between the, the uh, Odo and Kira is that kind of like, well, why don't you just kiss me then? Okay. You know, okay. Um, <laughs> this seemed more genuine, kind of like she just goes up and it's like I'm going to kiss you, and she kisses him, and they're not fighting, but they're having this, you know, that tension is there. That that that, but it's a soft tension. It's a it's a, you know, and so I thought that that was a more effective you know uh, thing. I always liked their their relationship. I thought when they lose their child in the upcoming episode, or the or the child that's produced out of their DNA. Uh, Is so beautiful and sad mm-hmm. and ho- horrible and just one of and was, uh, Star Trek's most powerful um, moments. And as a parent, you know, gut wrenching. Um, yeah. And and uh, much like the episode of Voyager where they they, they, they follow that same uh, line of reasoning with yeah with the doctor, but I mm-hmm. I um I. I liked the relationship between Trip and T'Pol, and I thought that it, that was Im- important for Star Trek to show that humans and Vulcans could have those types of relationships, because that kind of sets up the, the flip side of that, right, with uh, Sarek and, and Amanda.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Trip, I've mentioned it before many, many places, that Trip and T'Pol is the one relationship that I quote-unquote ship Right in Star Trek, I don't think Star Trek does relationships particularly well myself. Um, but this is probably my favorite. This is well, not probably this is definitely my favorite romantic relationship on the show, and I like how it builds up slowly over a lot of time to you know we finally get the culmination in the in the finale of the the real finale of the show.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely, mm-hmm. excellent. Uh, beyond that, I don't know that there's not much to say on bound it's kind of a one and done so is there anything we missed that you want to talk about
1: no really i just i see it as an, an episode of missed opportunities you know um uh, uh interesting premise great to see the orions but you know missed opportunity of about slavery missed opportunity about getting more into the orion culture and the, the complexities of it uh, and and it, you know it could have maybe been a two-parter and then we could have learned more about um the Orions and what their culture was really like, and 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 those types of gender issues within their society as a reflection of our own, and they just didn't really. I think maybe the forty, yeah, you know, the forty-one minutes they, you know, they needed to have the ten-minute dance scene. So uh, that's being facetious, but but you know <laughs> that they, they, you know, obligatory nod to Susan Oliver, um, and that it just didn't. It wasn't. I mean, it's, it's, look, there's no such thing as bad Star Trek to me because it's like pizza. There's some pizzas better than others, but there's no bad pizza. I've never had a bad slice of pizza in my life, and that's how I feel about Star Trek. Some are bad, be- some are better than others, but none are bad. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and this just isn't the best slice of pizza, I don't think.
0: No. No, this is just a plain old cheese pizza. This is a a microwave. This
1: is the microwaved, reheated microwaved pizza. (laughs) It's still good though, but it's you know it's it's a little soggy.
0: Excellent, John. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, we're rapidly closing on our retrospective. We're going to finish it up before episode 200. Um, so we've got one more. we uh, we got a wonderful guest tentatively to record for the last five episode recap. Um, so hopefully that pans out. Should be recording next week. Um, but we w- that will be coming, and we promise to finish that up before episode 200. But, John, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you online? Uh, when you're not uh, drinking wonderful booze from the Gorn hegemony <laughs> uh
1: well you know our uh, best way is probably on Twitter just uh we're um, at Tenuto family and you can find us there we have a little icon that's a fan sets uh, uh captain kirk uh, uh, pin so that's easy to recognize us on there and uh, our tweets disappear, but uh, they do they do reappear so we 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 post them and then we kind of take them down but uh, uh that's a good place to get us and uh and they could all people can also always reach me through um just the internet do a search and you can find my email at the college and give me a give me an email i love to talk to fellow fans
0: excellent right on well discussing season four is not all we've been doing here on the network this week so take a quick listen to this clip to see what else you may have missed elsewhere on trek fm Previously on Trek.fm, The Ready Room. But Larry, how do you know that there's not a house somewhere out there on the Forge where Cybox in the living room, Michael's in the living room, and there are like six other people in the living room that Amanda <laughs> and Sarek and Spock never talk about? They t- oh sure, they took <laughs> us in for a while and they threw us in the house on the Forge. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery Podcast. Wait, so what switched between your two lists? Calypso comes in... Runaway comes in second oh, of right, importance. Right. Okay. But Calypso comes in second in enhancement of the season. Okay. I see and really, even there. importance, I could probably, in my head, flip Calypso and Runaway. Because I don't mm-hmm. need Runaway. Standard Orbit. Ah! Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, is the best named movie of the first six movies. I think. Because
1: from a marketing point of view, from a Star Trek point of view, it's just a great title.
0: I'm not talking about the execution of the film. I just mean it's a great title. The other movie titles were eh, eh. You know, I mean, they weren't that creative. Literary Treks. So I I think if you have an idea or a story for a Star Trek novel, it it would be better served if that came on the heels of the 10- pieces of fan fiction that you've written or whatever, or, or things that you've written on your own that, not necessarily fan fiction, but if you've practiced as a writer and and have honed your your craft because they're going to want you to be a, a good writer. Yeah, they're going to, and, and that comes back to, you know, it's they're going to tie in editors, and this is not just Star Trek, this is anybody. They're going to go with people who have demonstrated an ability to hit their marks, hit their marks clean, easy to work with, or at least able to work with. um, And and can do that on a, and can do that on it's like, okay, I did it once. No, okay, well now do it again. Now do it again. Now do it three times in a row. Now do it five times in this one calendar year. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Warp 5. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at Trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek.fm. Well, Patrick, you can find him every other week here on the network with another show called The Edge, which is devoted to Star Trek Discovery. And you can find me, uh, you sorry, you can find him on Twitter as well at MagicDrop5. But the best place to find him is in the Babel Conference. And for me, you can find me on Twitter at Brandon Mattella. I'm here on the network with our new show called The Line, which is all about Star Trek Picard. We've had a few episodes of that released so far. I'm over on uh, the Fandom Podcast Network with a show called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast with my friends Chris and Tom, and we talk about Hitchcock films one at a time chronologically. And last but not least, I'm over on the uh, United Federation of Podcast Network with my friend Zach Moore from Standard Orbit. We have a show called Franchise Fatigue, which is all about movie franchises and sequels and remakes, and we go through them one at a time, and because we love remakes and sequels. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And at this time, we'd like to thank our wonderful associate producers of Warp 5, Norman C. Lau, Floyd Dorsey, Mike Morrison, Tim Cooper, Justin Ozer, Mark Flessa, Chris Tribuzio, and Jim McMahon. Thank you so much for your support of Warp 5 and Trek FM. Well that's all we've got for you this week. Uh, next week we have got a movie night for you. We're only got two left, so we're also wrapping up that string of episodes before episode 200. So next week's or next time we have the movie night episode for Rosemary's baby. Until then, remember you can't be afraid of the wind.